So take your Bibles with me this morning. We're coming back to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. It usually says that in your Bibles. It's the second book of the New Testament, and so it is the shortest book of the four Gospels that are in the New Testament. And it is so short that Mark just kind of zooms over things, you know, 16 chapters. It's uh, about half the number of chapters you find in, in Matthew, almost. And it is, um, he often says, immediately, immediately, immediately. And so we've already zoomed past probably where um, we would find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew, for example. We've zoomed ourselves clear past chapter 4, even though we're still in chapter 1 here in Mark. So that's how quickly he goes over things. So we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to be starting in verse 29, so that's where we will start. But I'll just kind of recap briefly. If you remember in the Gospel of Mark, it goes, skips over all the stuff about Jesus' birth and all of those kinds of things. And he doesn't start until we come to his baptism. And we have his baptism there as he is relating to mankind and our humanity. And we have the Father and we have the Spirit uh, affirming who Christ is in his baptism and so forth. And he goes immediately into the wilderness. Very quickly it mentions there. Immediately it actually says that. Euthus is the Greek word. And then he goes there to be tested. He's tested for 40 days and comes out and chooses the first of his disciples. So that's the beginning of his ministry. And then last time we looked at his ministry as it actually started. That was kind of the coronation of it, you could say. But last time we looked at his ministry, he's up in Galilee to the north now, and he begins his ministry there. And the first thing that you see is his amazing teaching, because people come around and they say, we've never heard anybody speak like this. He spoke in the synagogue there, which is still there. You can go there and see it. Uh, 2,000 years ago, it was there. There's another one built on top of it, but that's the location. And people were so amazed at his teaching because it was different, if you remember, from the, from the synagogue leaders, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis. It was different because he didn't quote anybody else. Jesus just quoted himself, you could say, in a way. And people were totally astounded by his preaching and his teaching. And then he runs into a situation where he commands a demon who is in a man who is in the synagogue. This poor man was troubled by this demon. He was demon infested, we would say. And Jesus casts the demon out. The demon recognizes who Jesus is, calls him by name, says where he was from, even knows why he's there. And the demon is terrified by Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. And he is of course, above all demons and all evil in the world, and in Satan as well, even though this is the place of the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. So he commands a demon to come out, and the man is healed, and um, we have the man very much thankful for, for all of that, and told, he tells the demon to be quiet, Jesus did, and so forth. So he demonstrates his amazing ability to teach, and he demonstrates his ability to have control over the demon realm of this world. So in the first part of his ministry in Galilee, which we're going to look at more today, he is beginning to show in all these little vignettes and all these little stories his authority as Lord and Savior, his, his person as being the Messiah who has come long awaited from Old Testament history and forward to where he was. So people are amazed, and then they see that... Uh, they see that he can cast out demons. People didn't really know who he was yet. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah, but they recognized that he could heal people, and that's what got their attention. But the demons did recognize who he was from the very beginning, and they were terrified absolutely from that. Now this morning, we come to a couple of more, um, three more uh, little vignettes about what he did while he was in Galilee. This is really the high point of his ministry there in Galilee. And all of these really, they really, in a sense, show who he is in the Messiah and reveal that to the world around them as well as to us. And that's why, that's why John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, that's why he puts them in here for us. And it's for us to look at Jesus today as well, because some people say, well, Jesus was a good man, he was a good teacher, but I don't really think he was God. That's not the message that John Mark is saying. He's saying he is God. 
He affirms that over and over. Although people would say that today, they simply don't know the full meaning and teaching of the scripture. So we come, first of all, to verse 29 through 34, where Jesus heals the sick, and he heals them completely here. This is a little different than the other situation there. He heals the sick, and he heals them absolutely, completely. And the first person that he heals is Simon Peter's mother of all cases, his mother-in-law of all cases. And it says there immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon Peter, Simon and Andrew, excuse me, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately, that's that word again that occurs over and over, they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. We'll just stop right there for a few moments. Let's look at this. They left the synagogue. Synagogue was as far away from Peter's house as this building is from the first car in the parking lot. It took you less than a minute to walk there. Been there, you can see. They found what they believed to be Peter's house. We show that little picture of Peter's house if you want to. The remains of it still there. And uh, there's quite a bit of evidence to say that this actually was Peter's home, Simon Peter's home during the time of Christ's ministry, Christ had stayed there. And he, Jesus had sort of made this now his Galilean headquarters during this time of ministry there. By the way, if you go there today, you won't see it quite like this. What you will see is a large church, unfortunately, built over the top of it with a glass floor so you can walk around and look down at the rocks without, you know, touching or moving or stealing anything. Probably a good idea from that standpoint. But it just is a reminder of the reality of these events that are still even being borne out more and more as time goes on by archaeology. So he immediately goes over there and he leaves the synagogue and he goes into Simon Peter's home. And it was Simon and Andrew, because they were the first two chosen, their brothers, and also along with them was James and John, the other two. These four guys, two sets of brothers, these four guys were the first ones that Jesus had called into ministry earlier, if you remember. So they're not really understanding who they really are in the greater sense of the word as being apostles yet, but they would eventually. And so it says in verse 30 that Simon's mother-in-law was sick, so she was very sick there. And uh, we look at the story there just a little bit. She had a fever. In fact, it says in in Luke, that it was a high fever. And keep in mind that Luke was a physician, so he mentions that aspect of the truth, that she had a, a very high fever, which was a common thing in that ancient world 2,000 years ago. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have many ways to treat those kinds of things. People, people would sometimes survive them, and see, sometimes they would not. The fever would go, perhaps, if it was an infection, and go septic, and they would die without too much time passing by. So. It was an organic disease. It wasn't just something that she thought. It was, a real, it was the real thing. And um, Simon's mother-in-law lived in his house with him and his brother Andrew, and they were fishermen. And it was common for relatives to live in the house here. You know, the first thing I thought about this when I, when I read this verse was they went to get Jesus when they knew who he was. They did. I think they understood better than others. They went to get Jesus when the mother-in-law was sick. You know what? When we face difficulties, we should go to get Jesus too, right? I mean, that's a very simple thing. We should go to Jesus right away. We can go to him in prayer. There's nothing to stop us from going to the Lord in prayer at any time because he says he's always present. He's present everywhere. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of our folks asked about where that verse is today. It's a good one to think about. And it's comforting. Many people, many people in the time of Christ, when they were facing these various problems, they saw him as a great healer, but they didn't see him as God yet. They didn't see him as the Messiah, as the Savior yet. In other words, they probably had not come to their own repentance yet, even though they were healed at, at times. But this would definitely be a door or a preparation or a way to get to that point as the Lord would work and affirm who he was through his healings there. And I have to say that it was through the sickness of my mother 
uh, many, many years ago when I was a teen, that that brought me closer to Christ. As she went to Christ in prayer, she never was healed. She eventually died of a brain tumor, but it brought me to Christ, and I stand before you today largely because of that. So the Lord works in strange ways. So anyway, Jesus goes over with him. It took him about a minute or so to walk from the synagogue over to the, uh, to the house of Simon Peter's, which had a number of rooms in it. And it says in verse 31 that he came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. The healing was instant, in other words. I want to make this point, because we often use that word, usually in Christian context, about, you know, I prayed and the Lord healed me. But the kind of healing Jesus did was generally different than that. It was instant. When he walked in, took her by the hand, suddenly the fever was gone. She stood up suddenly. And the fever left her immediately. And, of course, she waited on them. Uh, many people today sometimes... Um, quote-unquote, faith healers who claim they have the gift of healing will go to pray for people, lay hands on them, and then say, well, they're healed now, they're getting better. They're getting better. There was no getting better with Jesus. You were better. It was all of a sudden, that was one of the real signs of being true, truly healed. Now, it's not that God can't make medicine work, and medicine is part of God's plan today, and God does sometimes help us, I believe, um, get better when we have illness. We are to pray for those who are sick, and they may get well so slowly, but we may not have the gift of healing unless you can make them instantly better, make the tumor suddenly go away, and make the lame suddenly walk, and those who are demon-possessed suddenly be normal. If you can do that, you've got the gift of healing. Well, anyway, no rehab period here at all. No going to Cottesmore to get well and be able to get around again. No, gradually getting better, she was up and she was immediately healed. The fever was gone and she served them. Now that's worth thinking about for a moment. She had been touched by Christ and her, her desire then was to serve them. If you're truly healed, I think you really, if you're truly touched by the Lord, you want to serve the Lord. Service is what we're called to do carry out the gospel in whatever way God calls us to do that, in whatever context we may be in, and you should want to serve the Lord. doesn't mean you go and become a pastor or a missionary, but you can serve the Lord in whatever you do, whatever your, whatever your occupation is, and so forth. So Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Now there's a little bit of a problem here for the Catholic Church, because Peter had a mother-in-law, which means that Peter had a wife, and if he was the first pope, he, the first pope, had a wife. And if you know anything about Catholic Church, they believe or teach that, pope, that the pope and priests <clears throat> are to never be married <clears throat> and celibate and so forth. And, and so that's, that's the situation there. So when we look at this, it's obvious that he had a mother-in-law because it says so, and it's also obvious that he had to have a wife in order to have a mother-in-law. That's a little bit of a problem for the Roman church. And there's a way that they try to get around that sometime. Let me just speak to that just briefly here. One historian said that Peter's wife was martyred. And uh, it doesn't mention it in the Bible. It does, however, say in history, uh, historians that follow that time say that she was martyred and that Peter was at her martyrdom and encouraging her to trust in Christ as she was um, being killed. For the faith. Now, if that's the case, then perhaps he didn't have a wife. There's no mention of the mother-in-law's daughter, which would have been Peter's wife here in the text that we have. So perhaps she wasn't around. Perhaps she was. Maybe she was down doing something with the fishing business. Um, but at any rate, he did have a wife at some point, and. It seems like if she would have been martyred, it would have not have been before this. It would have been later because it was later when the martyrdom started to come. Quite a bit later, it was after Jesus was resurrected for the most part. So the Roman Catholic Church has a little bit of a problem with this. And we, of course, know the whole idea of celibacy is causing huge problems in the Catholic Church right now with all the lawsuits against it for abuse of children and so forth. 
It's interesting also in 1 Corinthians 9.5, there's another passage of scripture that does relate to this, where Paul is speaking there. In 1 Corinthians 9.5, he says, Do we, talking about himself as an apostle, he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? And Cephas is just another way of saying Simon or Simon Peter. It's another name for Peter. So he very clearly says Paul had, Paul is saying that Peter had a wife at some point. Now there's ways they try to explain that away too, but I won't to go into that. Uh, just leave it at that for now. So Peter's mother-in-law was healed. Amazing. In verse 32, it goes on about healing. It wasn't just his mother-in-law. It was all kinds of people that were healed at this point here. It says, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and uh, those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered at the door. Now notice, first of all, it was evening. This was the Sabbath, remember? Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue next door, and people were coming to hear him, and they were so amazed, they were blown away by his teaching. It caught their attention. It affirmed who he was in the sense that he was the Messiah. But people didn't do anything else on the Sabbath except maybe go to the synagogue, which there were thousands of them, several hundred of them in Galilee alone. And um, for them to get out and go anywhere beyond that would have been considered work, and it was against their Sabbath laws, of which many of them they added to a list of laws on their own. And so they were bound by a form of, we would say, a legalism, and that's part of the reason why Jesus was there. They wouldn't go anywhere, but once it got dark, once sunset came, they could go out. So evening came, and the sun was down, and they started coming because they'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard about his teaching. They heard about the demon-possessed man that had the demon leave as soon as Jesus just spoke. It was instant. And then they may have heard about Simon Peter's mother-in-law, too. Very interesting. They started streaming to him. They started coming from all points. I like the way uh, Scroggy, who's a um, commentator, describes this. He says, they began to gather from every street and from the thickly sown towns and villages around Capernaum. Capernaum is where they were. The strangest assembly of people. A child led uh, its blind father. Hold on. Here he goes. So, um, okay, let's get back to the text here. <laughs> it's summertime, isn't this? Great. Uh, I lost my train of thought. No, here we go. Um, Scurry goes on to say, the child was, was led to its, uh, led its blind father to see Jesus to be healed. The father carried the sickly child. Men bore the uh, helpless in swinging hammocks, and all who had any sick brought them fevers and convulsions and asthma and consumption and dropsy and shaking and palsy and deaf, dumb folks and those who were even possessed with devils, it tells us here too. They were coming. Suddenly, Peter's quiet little house by the sea became like an emergency room in a national disaster. And it is estimated in those villages there were somewhere, give or take, as many as 15,000 people. It wasn't just a little village. And as it's described, there were a lot of people there. And they were coming to see Jesus. Christ's day of work was going to be a busy one. And it would not, it would not wane much during this time. It says in verse 34, that he healed many, he healed many who were ill with various diseases and he cast out many demons and was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So, uh, 
he was healing these people left and right and busy. I think it didn't take long to heal anybody. He didn't have to do a diagnosis, take a test. And those of you who are doctors understand what I'm saying, you know, drawing blood. He knew immediately what it was and he just uh, would command the demons to come out or them to be healed and they were healed. And that got people's attention. The word got out very, very quickly. Those who came were healed of all kinds of diseases. And uh, the word is manifold, which means many colors, many colored kind of thing, diseases. Doesn't mean that the diseases were colored, but that's a word that can be translated that way. Various kinds of diseases. They were cast out, they were demons that were there, and the demons were, was a separate thing. Not all people that are sick have demons, of course. And, um, but the demons were causing problems for them, and Jesus suddenly cast them out. They were fearful. They, they were absolutely terrified of Jesus, we saw in the earlier example, earlier in the chapter. They couldn't possibly think of why he was there, because they were afraid he was going to cast them into the pit, which they knew they were going to go there because of being around for, since creation. <laughs> These demons knew what the ultimate end was, and they were fearing that it was going to come just then, perhaps. But Christ's power was there for a reason. I just want you to keep this in mind, that as he was doing these miracles, and as he was teaching, as he was casting out demons, these were not just for the sake of miracles, but these were for the sake of authenticating who he was, because he was the Messiah. Not all the people knew the story of his incarnation being born in Bethlehem and the miracles that surrounded that because that was a very closed time. Just a few shepherds and a few people knew about that, the Magi from the East and so forth. Some people may have gotten the message on that. Jesus grew up 30-some years and now suddenly comes out of the woodwork as a carpenter from Nazareth, only a few miles away and is doing this, and it's causing some stir in the communities there. He was authenticating himself as what he was doing. He was showing that he had authority over the satanic demon world, which they struggled with. And I believe the demons were a lot more open with people in that era and that day because they understood and they believed in him. But in America, as I said last week, America, we're so scientific that we've explained everything away, even creation and humanity. And so that would go for demons too. So demons lay low because if anybody says they're demon-possessed, they would be looked at as crazy today in our world. But if Christ is real, God is real, then demons would have to be real too because the Bible talks about them altogether. So this really authenticated who he was as the Messiah. He had power to heal people. He had power over the demon world. And he was an amazing teacher. His teaching was clearly from God. The demons got it, but the people didn't. The demons understood that, but the people were just enamored with his ability to heal, and maybe they could get something from him. Maybe they could come up and get healed. They really didn't get the picture that he was the divine son of God yet. That was coming, but that's why this was happening. So Peter's mother-in-law is a woman who is healed here, and that speaks to that. Next thing you see him, hap Next thing you see him do and happening in verse 35 is he goes to pray. And I think this is also very important. He prays for direction, and he prays for his preaching. I believe that is going to come up. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. He got up. He was at Peter's house. You can imagine him. Stone buildings, a little bit of a flat roof usually, some maybe palm branches or things over it. In some cases, they actually had hard roofs with, supported by logs. We have examples of that if you go there today to see it. But he was, he was tired already. Long day of healing people. People from Capernaum, the village they lived in, as well as the other village, were streaming to him, it says. And 
they just came in. It was probably late into the night, probably started somewhere around dusk, which would be maybe around six o'clock in the evening. And it went probably late into the night and then he went to bed and then he gets up early before sunrise. Do you like to get up early before sunrise when you've been up late after midnight? Probably not. Would Jesus get tired? Yes, he would, because he still was in his humanity, human body, but he was both God and man at the same time. And so he gets up and he goes out, he steals out through the doors and in the passageways of this little stone building where the family lived and his mother-in-law now healed was there probably rejoicing as she slept for the first time in a long time and Peter was comforted by all of that and Andrew their mother was better and so forth and but Jesus slips out in the darkness to go away to a secluded place and pray the time very early four, five o'clock, something like that, maybe even before he left. By the way, praying early in the morning is a good idea, isn't it? Um, it's usually when you're more awake, I think. Uh, it depends on how you spent your evening. But it's usually a good idea because it's quiet. And I like to get up early in the morning and go out on the patio and sit on a swing and watch the sun come up through the trees. Um, it does help me focus just a little bit because it's quiet out there and it's beautiful and a cup of coffee helps too sometimes <laughs> to go over prayer lists and things of that nature. The place, it says, was a solitary place here, quiet place, away from the crowds, away from the fishing industry, which was probably going into action early in the morning, I would imagine, the kind of boats they had, and on the Sea of Galilee there. So, um, very quiet, solitary place he found. Probably in the hills behind it where even perhaps um, the Sermon on the Mount would be preached later if we have the chronology right. There's some difference of opinion as to when the Sermon on the Mount took place. It may have taken place before this event or more likely even after this event. But you could walk up there in an hour easily. Probably there where he was alone, wouldn't be seen, and he started to pray. Sometimes, uh, sometimes people say, I feel nearer to God when I'm in the woods. That is a common thing for people to say. And there is a sense in which we might feel that way, but we should keep in mind that we are no nearer God in the woods than we are in the dungeon, the prison, in the midst of a war, or any other place, because God is everywhere. It's just that we don't see or understand or feel that and mainly because the crowd is near us when we're in those other places and we don't sense it because we don't, we're not calm in our spirit at that point. But the Lord is everywhere. And it's okay to go to the forest. It's okay to go to a place. Jesus did and pray. But you can't always do that because those places aren't always handy to go to. And it's good to pray wherever you are in the middle of a battle or in the middle of the night walking around in your kitchen, as occasionally we might do at home when we can't sleep, and pray. In the middle of a busy city, you can pray. You're not any closer to God there than you are any place else. And um, keep in mind that Satan would like to make us think that we can, well, some people would almost even worship the trees and things like that. Those things are created by God for our benefit, but not for our worship. We are to worship God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse declares the works of his hands when you look at the sky like Graham's picture. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words because these are the kind of wordless pictures that come out of the heavens because of God's creation. So there is a sense and we can, we can understand that. Psalm 19, I'm quoting from there. So Simon, in verse 36 now, awakes. Jesus has had some time to pray. He took away from his sleep time to have prayer time because ministry time is going to expand. Probably doesn't make sense if you take away from your sleep time. There is a place for sleep, and he would find it in other ways. 
Simon gets up and he doesn't know where Jesus is. He's not there. They look for him through the house. They look this room and they looked in that room. He's not there. Andrew comes out probably. They begin to look and the other two disciples there, James and, and Peter, and they look for him and they don't find him everywhere. And they go looking for him and they find him. I don't know how they found him, but they did. They probably knew where he might go. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. People were coming, probably. They were probably coming in the morning. They, didn't, they weren't bound to stay in their houses now. They could come any time. Early in the morning, they would come when they thought the house would be okay for them to come to, and they were looking for Jesus, and he wasn't there. Panic strikes. So, verse 38 says, Jesus said to them, he said, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. This is an important passage in keeping perspective on what's going on in these little vignettes here. What Jesus came for was not really to heal people, not really to throw out demons necessarily, although he had authority over those things, he had authority over all illness, and he had authority over all demon world, but he really came to preach the gospel. That's what he came for. So uh, this search party now heads back. And actually, as Simon comes here, this is an important point too. This is the first time we see any leadership ability on the, on the behalf of Simon, Peter. First time he really shows any kind of leadership as he forms this little bit of a, a search party here and they come looking for Jesus and he was successful. He was kind of a, a guy that was given to his emotions as we know and he comes and finds Jesus. I think Jesus would have come back on his own sooner or later. Obviously he would have, but Simon takes the initiative and leads this little search party and finds him. Jesus is praying. What was Jesus praying for? I had to ponder that just a little bit, think about it, because it doesn't exactly tell us, but we could, we could surmise somewhat accurately and maybe it would inform us just a little bit on how we should pray. Because often our prayers are much more, give me this and give me that, you know, and it's for my needs and it's kind of a, a, a shopping list of things we need, you know. But that wasn't the case here. And I think as Jesus was praying, he had, he had been, of course, with all these sick people and all of that, the demon possessed and so forth. Obviously, those things were on his mind and he may have been praying for those people in retrospect, looking back just a little bit. Um, he may have been praying to have communion with the Father. I think that's pretty obvious, too. We would say that I and the Father are one. We know that. And while they were one, there was yet communication between them. And it's likely that when he prayed, he did pray about those kinds of things because he was so busy. And his ministry was now really ramping up, big time. And he wanted communion with the Father. Did he want directions? In one sense, he knew all things, so we don't think that that was necessarily the case, but just talking over with the Father what had happened in the communion that they had together. But Luke 4 speaks about the same text in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, bring the same story, but from each person's perspective. And Luke, as he speaks about the event here, he says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, it says they tried to keep him from leaving them. They didn't want him to leave them there. Like he was perhaps trying to get away. It almost sounds like, doesn't it? And um, maybe they were going to try to get something from him right there, where it was on the mountainside, and, and maybe healing, maybe prayer, maybe something else. Maybe demons were bothering them. And they didn't want him to leave. They tried to prevent him from leaving. But notice what he says in verse 43. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. The good, this is the good news of God. The gospel of God was also called the gospel of the kingdom. It's all the same thing. He was preaching the good news. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he came to, to really do. And the miracles in the demon possession was all just to authenticate who he was so he could do that. And he said, 
to the other towns also. He's going to preach this to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. It's as clear as anything. That's why I was sent, to preach the good news. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So now it's saying he kept on preaching. He was there in Galilee, but eventually in Judea as well. In Judea as well, to the south. The gospel of the kingdom is most clearly defined in 1 Corinthians 15, the first five or six, seven verses, I think. And it says it is about the story of Christ coming to earth, his death, burial, resurrection. That is the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, in his resurrection, then he, of course, would eventually come back. And the idea is that this affirms who he was in, in God's eyes and that the gospel is the only thing that you must come to embrace to be born again or saved. You must come to embrace that, Scripture says. So the Scripture mentions this thing in several other places. The basic idea is that you come to a place of recognizing your sinfulness, as the people did a little bit earlier during his baptism, and they come to a repentance and um, put their faith in the coming of Christ who was there, and their faith in him because he would be the one that died on the cross to bring salvation and pay for our sin. So we have the cross window behind us and most churches, um, evangelical Bible teaching churches, do some kind of a cross around because it pictures that Christ died on the cross. He took our sins for him, died, was buried, and was resurrected to prove who he was. The final and the greatest miracle was his resurrection of himself, of himself. So the preaching of the kingdom was really why he came, and that's what all these vignettes are really about. They're to affirm that who he was and what for as he came to preach at this point. Pretty exciting. I, I, I always want our flock to know what the gospel is and where it's found in the New Testament. I've asked some young men that have visited our house from time to time with white shirts and neckties on. I got a yellow shirt today, by the way. And um, I asked them, where, the, where do you find the gospel? They didn't know. They were uncertain about that. So I said, can you define the gospel? And they couldn't define it clearly either. It's good for us to understand the gospel is about Christ's death, burial, resurrection, to pay for our sin, for all those who would come to repent and put their faith in him as the Savior. Very clear, very clear. And that's what Jesus was there for. That's what he was all about. But the people weren't ready for it yet. The demons were scared to death of him because they thought they were going to be thrown into hell right then and then. And the people were enamored with him because he could heal things. And he could heal people and do these miraculous things. And they thought they could get in on it too. But now we have one more vignette this morning we'll look at. And that is in verse 39. And this one is another healing also. But this one is different from the others. Because this one is a very, very difficult healing. This one was where he showed his real compassion for the outcast in the healing. So it's both the healing, but I think the, the outcast is part of it too. It's leprosy, leprosy. To say the word leprosy in that era, in that day and age, would have just sent chills down your spine if you thought you had it. Verse 39, we'll just go through these last few verses down to verse 45. 39 says that he went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. So that's what he did after, after they found him up on the hillside. He went all throughout Galilee. Um, there were several hundred villages in the Galilee region, which is about the size of Pierce County. The, the region of Galilee and the lake of Galilee is 7 by 14 miles. That's in the middle of that. That's where the fishing industry went. And that was a major fishing village where Peter lived and where Jesus was. But now Jesus goes into other synagogues as well. In all Galilee, it says, so a distance from here to Mount Rainier, preaching and casting out the demons. That's what he did. That's a summary statement of a lot of things that were going on. It summarized his ministry. And they went it went to the synagogues first, always to the synagogues. It had only been created perhaps a, a century or two before. We don't even know for sure exactly when, but it was after they came back from captivity in Babylon. And this was the teaching place, and the Jews would go there for teaching, if you remember. 
So there were lots of little synagogues all over the place. They were kind of small, and Jesus went to them because the Jews would be there, and that was his ministry, first of all, to go to the Jews first. And later on, then, to the Gentiles through the apostles. But there were Gentiles saved also in this. And he preached the gospel of God, or the gospel of the kingdom, however you want to call it. And he had not yet died on the cross himself, but he preached enough of it to fit into what would be the fullness of it when he himself had completed the picture by his own death on the cross. He cast out demons because he alone had authority to do it. Nobody else could. There were some who tried to do that, but they never were successful in the sense that Jesus was at all. And um, we are really skipping over a lot of the events of Jesus' life when we get to this verse here. So um, actually, right about this time, in the other Gospels, they talk about Peter, Simon Peter and Andrew being in the boat again and they're fishing and they're not doing well and Jesus comes down and he calls them to himself a second time because they kind of perhaps didn't get it totally the first time. So they're going to become the lead apostles, the first four, with Peter at the beginning. But they were called twice. That is in the other Gospels, but Mark doesn't bring that into it here. He doesn't bring that into it. He goes right to the heart of the issue, the preaching of the Gospel. Verse 40. By the way, when we send missionaries out, let me say that the number one thing that we emphasize with our missionaries and require them to do, all of our missionaries in Ukraine and Iraq and, and um, Brazil and Thailand, that they're somehow involved in the preaching of the gospel or in helping those who do the preaching there be able to preach the gospel effectively and clearly from the scripture. That's a requirement. They're not there for social reasons, not that they don't do social things to help people out with food and so forth and medicine. We have medical doctors who go there, but they preach the gospel while they're doing their healing arts as doctors as well and nurses. So we require that of our missionaries to be a part of our missionary staff in our church. So anyway, in verse 40 it says, A leper came while he was in the process, and this little story is chosen for us for a reason. He came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, make me clean. You can make me clean. This guy has leprosy, and leprosy was probably the number one disease that people really feared. And this is going to show Christ's authority over leprosy as well here. It was dreaded. We don't see it here because there's been cures that have come for it. Um, but in the Old Testament, there are a couple of chapters in Leviticus, Leviticus 13 and 14, that are devoted just to the whole topic of leprosy and cleanliness and, and making sure you don't get it. And if somebody starts to get well from it, how it would be affirmed by the priest who was sort of the guardian of people's health. And the leper would come to him who, have, if supposedly was getting better, in some cases they actually did, and he could somehow be able to affirm this, and there was offerings that were made and so forth and so on. A lot of detail there. You can read it. Leviticus 13 and 14 sometimes. But there were three different kinds of leprosy. There, were, there was, first of all, nodular leprosy. Nodular leprosy were the little nodes would kind of form on the skin, and um, they would turn brown, and sometimes in the folds of the skin of the body and so forth. And they would grow and they would become ulcerated and give off a foul discharge. And if you had that, it would take you about nine years to die. Then there was another type of leprosy called anesthetic leprosy, which affects the nervous trunk of the body, the nerve trunk of the body. And that one uh, caused a loss of feeling or a loss of sensation, so you wouldn't be able to feel hot or cold or any kind of feeling and um, their muscles would eventually waste away and so forth and if you had that one it would be, take maybe 20 to 30 years to die and maybe brother Canute who's a doctor saw that in Africa did you see leprosy in Africa? you did you can ask him about it after church he knows about it should have talked to you about it and then there was another form, was really a mixed form of the other two, um, both types, and was common also. And 
there was uh, some other diseases too that could be mistaken for it, psoriasis, ringworm, fungus, and so forth. And it was also called Hansen's disease, not after the people in our church by the name of the Hansons. I see that they're here this morning, by the way. <laughs> Spelled a little differently, I think. But um, it was, uh, Hansen's disease was, um, was known as leprosy, also kind of an infection caused by slow-growing bacteria called Microbacterium leprea and causes uh, the nerves and the skin and the eyes and the lining of the nose and so forth and mucus and so forth to uh, have problems and very difficult also. Socially, if you had leprosy, it was a bad deal. It very, very much was. This man had leprosy, so he would be considered pretty much like an outcast there. And um, people would require, be required to wear black and that was funeral clothing, so you would wear funeral clothing, and when you were bad enough, you would look like the zombies in The Walking Dead. It was really, well, the idea is that they were like the walking dead, because they were all going to die, so people avoided them as they came. They avoided them. And uh, unclean, unclean, they were to call out to warn the fact that they were coming so that people would get out of the way. The walking dead, socially unacceptable. Mentally, obviously, that would have been pretty bad, wouldn't it? If you had that, not much to encourage you and drain away your joy and your life and so forth. And I could imagine they had all kinds of problems with depression and so forth. Religiously, it affected them as well because going to worship, you couldn't go like the average person. If you had it, you had to, of course, wear the black and then you had to stand in a separate place away from the rest of the people and look through a little wall with a little little slit there so you could look through to see what was going on inside the synagogue or wherever it was there. The name Paul Brand, Paul Brand, who lived from 1914 to 2003, was the first physician to really understand and appreciate leprosy and that it wasn't just a cause by a rotting away of the tissue, but it really was a cause by a loss of the sensation and the loss of sensation for pain, which resulted in more injuries because people would touch burning things, not feel the burn, but they would be burned because they didn't have any sensation. Dr. Brand contributed a lot to the field of medicine in his lifetime. And um, uh, he, were, and he was um, a son of missionary parents, probably, I don't know if it was in Africa, Canute, but somewhere where that was a case, and so he saw these things, and his val his uh, his research and everything contributed greatly to medicine and dealing with leprosy. And a book was written with him and another author, Phil Liancy is his name, called "Pain: The Gift Nobody Wants." If you've read it, maybe you have some. It's a well-known book. It was republished in 1997 as The Gift of Pain with a spiritual message attached to it. And uh, Dr. Brand uh, actually came here to our church once and spoke right at our pulpit in the barn years up there. And I had the privilege of driving him home and talking to him about leprosy. And he lived in a very humble house in West Seattle there. Impressed me, nice, nice man to try to learn from just a little bit. So we don't have many lepers in the United States yet because we've got a lot better medicine here and cures and so forth. But in other parts of the world, they still do. And deformities here in the States are looked at in a different kind of way. So what did Jesus feel like here? Verse 41 says they, that he was moved with compassion. And that's the thing I want you to see in this little story. He was moved with compassion when he saw this. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. Don't ever touch a leper. leper. That was the idea. But he touched the leper. And he said to him, I am willing, be cleaned. Because the man wanted to be healed. If you're willing, and Jesus said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leper Leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Cleansed. First of all, I believe that when we look at this leper, he was a humble man. He was humbled by his disease. Obviously, you can see how terrible it would be 
he was on his knees coming to Jesus, you know, and, and, and begging there, and, and Jesus was just moved with compassion by the heart of this man there, and it must have been something else as he did. D.L. Moody said, uh, he says, you can be too big for God's grace, but never too small. And I think this man had come to great humility. Small, he wasn't too small for God's grace, but a lot of people think they're too big for it. So, while the rest of the culture pretty much shunned this poor fellow, Jesus was moved with compassion and, and he, he reached out to him and he healed the man. He was gripped with compassion. It's a verbal adjective there. It's got both action and so forth and description. Gripped with compassion. He didn't drive him away. He touched him. I had to think about that. It was a scary thing to touch somebody with leprosy. You know, a child here gets a little bit sick, and you know, everybody kind of panics. Don't bring him to church. Don't bring him to Sunday school. Don't bring him in the nursery. But this was leprosy. And um, a leper should not even have spoken to him by law in that culture. It was so serious. But he did. He was humbled. And Jesus did the unthinkable. He touched him, and he talked to him, and he healed him. Once again... His healing was not a gradual thing. It wasn't medication. It was just healed instantly, instantly. This is really a picture of Christ's compassion for us. I think there's a, there is a sense in which there's a little bit more for us here when we look at this story. It's a picture of his compassion toward us in our sin. And when we come to him in humility as this leper came to him who had no hope in his own self, in his own world, in his own culture or medical community, no help, no hope, Jesus was able to help him, spiritually speaking, as well as physically speaking. But the this physical aspect speaks about the spiritual. And so the gospel of the kingdom would go to this man as well who heard, obviously, Jesus preaching because that's what he mainly did. So he healed this sinner. And he was a sinner. But he was a leper. He didn't do anything wrong. He's still a sinner. I like the way Franklin Graham said it last Sunday night. He said, everybody's a sinner. You think you've never sinned? Well, if you think you've never sinned, you've just sinned. Because you thought that. Everyone is a sinner. So we are reminded very clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including the leper, including every one of us. We're all in the same boat, like the leper. But it is through the faith in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Saved. And that's, of course, understanding that you come to repentance about your own sin and you're, you're putting your faith in him because of because of who he is, to be able to forgive our sin and heal us of the greatest disease of all, sin, sin there. And John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Leper was like that. Came to Christ, wasn't going to be cast out. Verse 43 now he warns, he warns this guy. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. So he told the leper, okay, I want you to head out. Don't say anything about me. That was a basic idea because he didn't want a lot of people just trampling down on him just for healing. He wanted to preach the gospel to him. He wanted to preach the gospel. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now that's kind of strange. Don't tell them that you've been healed. Don't talk to anybody about this. Go show yourself to the priest, though, that's what it was to do, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded in the testimony to them. In other words, he's saying, I want you, don't talk to anybody. They see you coming. They know you're a leper. They recognize you, but now they can see you're walking. Don't say anything to them. Go to the priest first, and then the priest will go through the motions of whatever Leviticus 13 and 14 required of the priest to verify that this man was truly healed. Because now if he was truly verified as being healed, not only in just the eyes of the people, but by the priest, 
then the priest would have to affirm that Jesus was God at the same time, wouldn't he? And did they want to do that? No, they did not want to do that. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was sending them to the priest to verify that before the people. And that would put the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and all those people in a difficult position when they didn't like what Jesus said. Unbelief is incriminating in that kind of situation. Is the unbelief of the priests who didn't accept Jesus. It becomes incriminating to them when they would not believe that this, or would not affirm that this really was a true miracle and the man was completely healed. There's a whole, there was a whole checkoff list for the priest to do there. Leviticus. Verse 45, last verse. Talking about the leper here now, it says, But he, that is the leper, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the good news, the news here, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. Remember what Jesus said, don't tell it to anybody, just go to the priest. But he disobeyed Jesus, and he went to tell everybody. He was so excited. I mean, I, in a sense, I could probably understand why he would do that. And he went to tell all the people in his home, in his village, wherever he came from. And the news just went out like wildfire all the more. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It is here. And it got to the point where Jesus could not even go into the cities anymore. Can you imagine that? There was just people everywhere. He had to go out in the unpopulated areas, the lonely areas, the the areas up on the hillsides of Galilee around the outside because there's a lot of mountains and hills all around and he would go to these other places. People would still come and he would still minister there. And it says they were coming to him from everywhere. So he established the fact that he had authority over all the demons. He established the fact that he could cast them out. He could tell them to get out, to leave, and immediately they did it and they were fearful of him. He established the fact that he had authority over leprosy, the feared disease really of the time, and all kinds of illnesses, the fevers like the mother-in-law had, and many other diseases that people, that people had. He established that fact. And it only accrued to the good of his preaching for the most part, because people were beginning to see that this man is more than just a man. Eventually, they would come to see that this is God. This is the Messiah, long awaited. And the point was that they, they would get the message out. They would get the message that he wasn't there just to heal, and there were just people just plainly searching for healing, as sometimes in modern day healing places or faith healers, people are enamored with the guy who supposedly can heal them. But can he heal them like Jesus could? Just by a word? Just by saying something? If faith healers today who claim that can do that, why don't they go to the hospitals? Don't see them in the hospitals. Why don't they go to the sick beds? Don't see them there. Why don't they go to the funeral homes? Raise people from the dead. You don't see them there. Someone talked to me this week on the phone, was telling me about their experience with some of that group of people and how they had fleeced people for money, older people, sad to say, sad to say. People sometimes want healing without repentance, but repentance always comes first. Whether we get physical healing or not, we get spiritual healing, and that's the best of all, is it not? It is, it is, really. So they went everywhere. Well, this really is the end of Jesus' active ministry in Galilee. Things began to change, things began to turn against him, and we'll see a different picture now when we come to next week. Um, we come to next week, we're going to see how that all changes, and eventually he leaves the area and so forth. But of course the question is, where are we today? Are we looking to Jesus for spiritual healing? Are we looking to Jesus for who he is? He is God. He is the authority. He is, the, he is over the prince of the power of the air. He's over um, all the illnesses that are out there. 
And even though we still live in a world that's cursed by sin, it still is today, and people still get sick and they still die, we all will die because it's appointed unto man once to die. Doesn't it say that in Hebrews? And after this comes the judgment. But if our judgment's been taken by Christ on the cross, we escape that. We've been healed from that. So, do you have any questions this morning after we sing this next song? Uh, when Clay comes uh, afterwards, um, I'll be up here. And I think uh, any of our other leaders that happen to be here or not at camp can answer questions and we can talk to you and be happy to pray with you and things of that nature. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's spiritual life. That's spiritual life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his ability to present himself and build the case for who he was in these early early months of his ministry on earth with a preparation and a focus on what he would do on the cross in the latter months and year or two. Bless our understanding, Lord. Call, we pray, those to understand these things to yourself. And may we come to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus alone, we pray, today, as this man evidently did in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.